been over the past years, very low inflation, low profitability. And so this has basically impeded the pass-through of of prices to wages and wages to prices and also impeded uh, the development of longer-term inflation expectations, which which is why we're in the situation that we're in today. So basically, um, there is a a real urgency to develop... um, inflation expectations via the wage channel and, and this is something that the government are, are looking at at the moment Okay John, thank you very much for that that's John Byrne who's Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute Let me give you an update on the uh, on the markets uh, as, as they stand You're listening the to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 um, over in Australia, the ASX 200 is up about a quarter of a percent uh, at the moment. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 0.1% at the open. In South Korea, the Cosby up half a percent. Um, and the Hang Seng looks set to open about 100 points lower later on this morning. Stay tuned for back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Fine. Apart from isolated showers, very hot during the day, maximum temperature of around 33 degrees, and it's going to be very hot with sunny periods tomorrow, um, but there will be more showers in the following couple of days. The very hot weather warning is still in force. It's 29 degrees right now, 75% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. A survey has suggested that around one-third of music industry workers have left or want to leave Hong Kong as they can't perform here due to COVID restrictions. The Musicians Foundation, which polled 460 workers this month, said its members have been unable to make a living for the better part of the past two years. Here's the group's founder, Chris B. I'm thinking the government can just follow exactly the same procedure that it does for the other workers in a venue, right? At the moment, they require them to be triply vaccinated and do a rat test every day. You know, they do this for bars. So it's easy enough to do the same thing for people in the music industry. Almost everyone in the music industry is triple vaccinated, and they have been for a long time. They're so ready to just get back to work. The Japanese government has asked people to save electricity as the country faces a surge in demand because of rising temperatures. Officials fear there won't be enough power to run air conditioning units, as the BBC's Michael Bristow reports. The rainy season in Tokyo and the surrounding area, which usually brings cooler weather, now appears to be over. It's been the shortest since records began in 1951. Temperatures have increased sharply in the Japanese capital and many other regions. That's led to a surge in demand for electricity for air conditioners. Officials fear there might not be enough power to run them, so they're asking people to save energy. Maintenance at power stations is also being postponed, and one aging power plant is being reopened. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has denounced a Russian missile strike on a shopping center in the central city of Kremenchuk as one of the most brazen terrorist acts in European history. At least 13 people were killed in the attack, but that figure could rise. A United Nations spokesman, Stefan Dujaric, described the strike as deplorable. Any sort of civilian infrastructure, which includes obviously shopping malls and civilians, should never ever be targeted. We're obviously concerned about the intensifying fighting that we have seen. We're concerned for the civilians who are being put at risk and who are being killed. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a school football coach had a constitutional right to lead prayers on the field after his team's games. It held that the actions of Joseph Kennedy, a Christian, were protected by his right to free speech and religious expression. The BBC's Anthony Zercher reports. The coach had initially begun praying by himself, but in later games he was joined by players, parents, and members of the crowd. The school officials had expressed concern that the coach's actions would make his players feel compelled to join him and exclude students of different religions. Writing for the court majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch dismissed those concerns and explicitly abandoned a line of cases dating back to the 1970s that required public institutions to avoid excessive entanglement with religion. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today once again is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. For our main uh, subject this morning, we're talking about the very controversial issue of abortion rights in the United States and uh, globally. Uh, last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling, which had guaranteed a woman's constitutional right to an abortion across the country. That judgment mean, means that uh, individual states can now ban abortion if they wish. About half are expected to introduce new restrictions or total bans, and a number have already passed what are known as trigger laws to automatically outlaw abortion. The ruling has been welcomed uh, largely by those on the right of U.S. politics and religious conservatives, but the U.S. President Joe Biden has condemned it, calling it a sad day for America and declaring that the fight over abortion rights is not over. After 9.15, we'll be looking at the hospital authorities' plan to bring in doctors from the Greater Bay Area in an attempt to counter what it describes as a very worrying brain drain in Hong Kong. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Joining us now in our Admiralty studio, we have uh, Chris Exliner, former chairman of Republicans Abroad, and Kendall Johnson, who's a professor of American literature at the School of English at the University of Hong Kong. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, and just before we go any further, uh, I must just say that uh, we always try to get uh, balanced panels for these programmes. Uh, uh, it would have been good if we could have also had uh, a female guest, a woman guest. Uh, we do after nine o'clock. After nine o'clock, we'll be joined by Evelyn Chow, who's a solicitor and partner of uh, Patricia Ho and Associates. Um, but for now, uh, we're grateful to have uh, Chris Exline and Kendall Johnson, uh, who are both uh, very articulate and knowledgeable guests, to join our back chat program first of all uh, chris if i could just ask you first generally what's your reaction to the u.s supreme court ruling well good morning um actually i'm i'm in favor of the ruling and i have been for quite some time and i believe that it's uh, it, legally it was the right thing to do because it takes the matter it doesn't ban uh, it doesn't ban abortions but it take, makes the matter a local issue and sends it back to the states so basically it becomes you know, really an issue if you want to, you know, if all the voters are in a row, so to speak, um, it becomes a very legal issue in the local states and in the local counties. In practice, though, that's going to mean um, 
at least half the states do take action to ban abortion. But they already have. I mean, right. right now you've got 21 that's, uh, that outlaw it, um, and you've got 20 that have enshrined it into their state constitutions that it's, that's, that it's a right. Um, you know, I mean, when I was taking my driver's test, the first question is, in the state of Illinois, is driving a right or a privilege? <laughs> so it's a privilege. But in 20 states already, uh, abortion or access to abortion is a, is a fundamental right. I mean, this is a, quite a profound and fundamental ruling and, and, and a huge uh, change, isn't it? I don't think so. No? Uh, no, I mean, I think if you what, what happens is with so many things in the United States, you have to really distill the reality from all of the rhetoric that goes on there. Does this really move the needle? Not much. I mean, you look at <clears throat> there was a poll, 59 percent um, disapprove of it. That, that's fine. But if you strip out, you know, the the urban centers of, of Los Angeles, Boston, San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C., it becomes very divided, just like the United States. And you've got, uh, you know, for from a Republican standpoint, I think you have to be very careful of getting what you wish for. Right. Um, you know, it was probably one of the most galvanizing vote-getting issues. I would say that almost anyone would agree that while it didn't lead to the election of Donald Trump, the fact of having the Supreme Court vacancies was a huge rallying cry within the evangelical community that turned out a lot of support for him in 2016. That's now gone. And I think that right now, if you continue to make this an issue, uh, you're going to just alienate people that, that you could have won over that basically are soccer moms. And the soccer moms in the suburbs, whether you know it's uh, uh, in, in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Dallas, you know it doesn't really matter. You're going to, if, if Donald Trump gets on the stump and start saying that, oh, look what I did for you. It's all about me. I got you all these things. I think he's going to alienate some of the one million voters that have changed from Democrat to Republican in the past 12 months. Now, you raised, uh, Chris, a very interesting point, of course, because those vacancies were filled on the Supreme Court, nominated by Donald Trump. Um, but during questioning by members of the Senate to, in the course of their confirmation, several of them were asked specifically about Roe v. Wade, and they indicated under oath that they respected precedent. Oh, I think that's fake news. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. But we saw the confirmation hearings. No, you didn't. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm joking. Of course. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I, I have issues uh, with, with those justices, uh, Barrett and, and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, that said that they you know, respected precedent, that they didn't want to overturn it. They were asked specifically about Roe v. Wade. Um, they'll go back and saying that they were vague on it. Um, you know, I, I guess in some ways what you've seen, sadly, is that the Supreme Court nominations uh, and, and the, the district and appellate courts uh, are somewhat more political than people realized. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Kendall Johnson. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, what do you think about the ruling? Well, I have a very different opinion in that it goes to the very heart of foundational human rights uh, regarding uh, sexual reproductive rights, um, particularly well focused on women, and it's a striking overturning of a foundational logic that's held up many similar types of rights accrued through rights of privacy, substantive due process rights. And it takes us back to the 14th Amendment, an amendment that uh, in the wake of the Civil War basically guaranteed equal protection and prevented the 
denial of due process from anyone born in the United States. At that time, women could not vote. They couldn't vote until 1920, till the 19th Amendment. Um, so you're talking about a decision that I think is on very sketchy legal grounds as well. I mean, Alito's, we, we knew this was coming. We saw the leaked draft. Um, people read it at the time and kind of wondered at some of the logic, wondered at some of the methodology of legal historicism. And here it is, uh, pretty much the same decision, but with some, I think, deep flaws. But I don't think it really moves anybody. I mean, I'm, I'm very I, – I, I, I have to trammel my, my thoughts on this because, you know, I am not a woman and I've never had the experience of, of carrying a child. And I don't have children of my own, nor will we. But, you know, so I, I – but I, I do believe strongly that, you know, there, there are rights for the, for the yet-to-be-born. Um, and so th those, those deep-seated and probably some of the mostly deeply rooted foundational things for all Americans, those aren't going to change. Now, the, the, the laws have changed and the reaction to the laws have changed. But Professor Johnson feels one way, I feel another, and nothing that we say to each other, no matter how hard I try, is going to move that. Is well, that correct? But I, I think what I'm to speaking try? to is basically the, the legal process, the sort of process of writing this particular decision. And I'm also uh, going back to the notion of how the, the Constitution works. The idea that it's a strict constructionist uh, ideal is, I think, something that's belied by, you know, for example, um, many other decisions related to reproductive access to birth control, to gay marriage, to interracial marriage. All of these weren't supposedly settled traditional um, rights within the culture or within the Constitution, and we enjoy them today because of a similar logic that gave women the foundational right of privacy related to reproductive um, autonomy. And, and this particular Mississippi law is something that I don't think anyone would actually you know, feel comfortable uh, embracing. The idea that there are no exceptions, that if you... Someone, a woman is raped, she must carry that child to uh, delivery. Of course, it's not the question of when, when it is a child, when life begins, is the middle ground, is the question of, well, how do you know, we answer that? Stepping outside of some type of religious ideology or foundational, fundamental sense of faith, the truth is that women negotiate their lives in relation to reproductive responsibilities and medical access is key to that. And the right of privacy of a woman to talk with her doctor, to weigh the broader context of what bringing a life into this world means. I mean, it's sort of a, a strange hypocrisy to kind of focus so deeply on this early gestational stage of what might become a child. And then to overlook completely the right of states, for example, to um, regulate guns, uh, to not provide health care that's responsible for women who are in early stages of pregnancy, to overlook the impoverished women who have children. I mean, this, this type of disconnect really, I think, drives a wedge in the way in which you can claim moral foundation to such a blanket, generalistic assertion that you're protecting life by restricting women's rights to their own reproductive autonomy. It seems, if I can put it out there, that the 
from the moment of uh, that, if you like, insemination, mm. for want of a better term, Conception. Um, the courts take over the woman's body. It, in this case, it does. And this is, well, it throws it back to the states to figure out how. In Mississippi, it does. And, many, and, and the long game here is that at some point there will be in, the, the play is to actually get a federal law that bans abortion. Right, and then every state will become like Mississippi. Mississippi. Well, if it if it passes, number one, I if it passes, I, but that is the long game, and and that's what Clarence Thomas made very clear in his dissent opinion. And he wasn't just talking at that point about abortion; he was talking about any of the stare decisis rulings based in rights of privacy. Well, I I, I again take a, a different uh, va- viewpoint from. From uh, Professor Johnson, because it, it, one, if it starts at conception, then then you look at it as, as protecting a life. I mean, the, the courts aren't taking over a woman's body; they're actually stepping in and preventing um, the termination of life. But those issues won't be settled this morning, nor will they be settled by um, you know illimitable discourse between <laughs> Professor Johnson and myself. But it just does highlight um, you know the. You know, the the divisiveness of of it. I mean, here here we are, two people with, you know, I guess advanced degrees and stuff like that, and we we can civilly disagree, but yet we're overlooking the uh, uh, mental health uh, issues that that are con- that are that those women are having to confront, and I I feel very deeply and, and moved by that. I find also interesting. This, this is an interesting kind of question of a political partisanship that's in, been introduced to the abortion issue since the 1970s, since right to life groups gained political. Tra- Action. And it's worth remembering that the Roe versus Wade uh, majority decision was written by Chief Just, uh, Justice Harry Blackman, who was appointed to the court by Richard Nixon. And in writing that decision, he knew he was threading a needle. And part of that needle was protecting doctors who perform medical abortions. Right. Um, and in, in threading that needle, he was deeply informed about the medical uh, context. He'd been studying and working at the Mayo Clinic, and he comes out of that experience and is then able to write a, a decision that wasn't to everyone's liking, but actually took into con- into consideration women's lives and the rights that they have as women in relation to carrying a child to term. And again, I use the child provisionally. Because part of what is at the heart here is at what point do you kind of override a gestational process that's happening inside a woman's body and make it more important than the woman in whose body it's taking place? Uh, President Biden and his uh, associates and supporters have expressed their dismay over the ruling. They've said uh, disadvantaged uh, communities and women are going to be uh, worst affected by it. Um, what do you think, uh, uh, Chris Exline, is this going to cause uh, more social problems and difficulties uh, in the U.S.? No. No, it, it won't move the needle at all. Um, if you if you take a, a map of the United States and you have an overlay with because Mike had mentioned earlier about making it a federal law, and I think this is what I alluded to earlier when the Republicans uh, need to be careful what they wish for. I think that now the decision is done. The smartest thing for the Republican Party to do is just let it rest and let it go into the communities and the states and let the governors and the legislatures handle it. Having said that, the there is a temptation on both sides to make it into a federal issue. But if you look at the 
the swing states for the U.S. Senate and the uh, those that don't have a codified response on either trigger laws or enshrined to allow abortion. There's only four, and there it's it's you know Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, and those Senate races are all extremely tight. They're all toss-ups, and I think that in some ways it's going to hurt the Republicans. Now in, in Georgia, you have uh, you know, Walker. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Walker Dallas Ranger uh, stumbling in from Dallas to to run for a seat in the in the Senate there, and he's made so many mistakes saying that if people didn't like Georgia, there were 51 other states that they could relocate to. Um, you know, speaking out in, in defense of, uh, of the Supreme Court decision, I, I I don't know how I mean, how does a man sit there, regardless of what a great football player he was? For the Dallas Cowboys or whomever, you know, say, oh, yeah, I'm, I support uh, the Supreme Court's decision. Um, and you want to say, well, did you tell that to uh, any of your three illegitimate children from uh, three different women? You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, there's there's a host of issues and a host of, of and I'm not making light of any of this for the, the, the women or those that are like Professor Johnson, uh, deeply uh, emotive to this. I'm just trying to bring up something else, uh, you know, to be, lighten the lighten the, uh, the the mood a bit. But. So there's only four states, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, uh, you know, uh, Georgia and Wisconsin, uh, where it may may happen. And Ron Johnson's probably going to lose his seat for you know pretending to talk on the phone while he was the one that gave Mike Pence's aides the uh, slate of uh, alternative uh, electors in the January 6th deal. So, you know, who knows? Can we get into this issue of spillover issues? That is, whether the same logic will apply to, and I think someone, I've made a note here, um, contraception, uh, which was a, a right, or same-sex marriage. Um, are, the, are the people who achieved this political victory, are they, are they got the taste for it now? Are they going to go on to other things? No. Well, I, I, I think, I think right. that there's, you know, first to go back to the question of you know, what, what the impact of this politically will be, look at the number of companies who are now providing two women travel reimbursements to go from one state to another. Mm. This is fascinating to see how many major corporations are responding to this. Mm. Meta, Amazon, uh, companies like that. And then you think about what kind of states, you know, what kind of environment states want to create for corporate investment. That's number one. Number two, well, you can't have it both ways. I think that this will have a deep impact on the electorate. And back to the the question that was just posed, will this affect other privacy rights things, privacy rights precedents? Uh, And the answer, it could very well. If you lose, if you lose these, you know, foundational senses of due process as stare decisis, then you could very well lose Oberfeld versus Hodges in 2015, which gave same-sex marriage its legal foundation. Um, You could easily go back to questions of Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, which gave full access to uh, birth control, including birth control that uh, basically is the morning-after pill, right? Mm. Um, And would states then go after women who are living in their state and then have something mailed to them or go outside of their state for a procedure? Well, there's no answer to this at this point. And if Mississippi, for example, did, just imagine this. Then you're talking about really tracking your citizens based on perhaps information from another citizen, telling, snitching, 
I mean, this goes back to the states in ways that yeah, um, really yeah. open a Pandora's box of who gets to monitor and regulate women's sexuality. Yeah, I, I, I think these clarion calls about this being a slippery slope for everything else are just false. I, the, the, people aren't going to be able to stop contraception. People aren't going to be, um, you know, investigated or, uh, you know, indicted for going across state lines. And with regards to same-sex marriage, as someone who's in a, a one myself, um, I think that we have the right to suffer just like straight people. Fair enough, but that's not the point. We, no one wants suffering. And to kind of like <laughs> no, I'm just saying that in every relationship, of, we, you, know, yeah, uh, well, you know, we have the right to we have the right well, to, I, to fight. I appreciate like, I appreciate the levity, but I'm not really just well, emoting. No, I'm, what okay, I'm trying I'll, to do is is, is basically on these on these set this on a, 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 you know set this not on like a you know sort of like a bantering situation, but the question of look, well, how did this happen? What could happen next based on the same logic? How do we look at the way in which people reassured? over Roe v. Wade. It will never get overturned, and here we are. Now, if you look at the political processes, the sort of uh, uh, lobbying that went on for decades to this point, well, it makes perfect sense. Yes. And when you read uh, Clarence Thomas's decision, it makes perfect sense. He wants to go after this type of logic through gay rights marriage into other questions of same, uh, of uh, well, particularly birth control and gay rights. I don't know. Well, I think he's probably pretty stalwart advocate of interracial marriage, but it's the same logic that allows interracial marriage to be traditional U.S. Uh, law that allows Roe v. Wade. It's the same 14th Amendment due process guarantee, and if you go after that, well, it is a Pandora's box. Well, he, he's in an interracial marriage himself. But what I'm getting at is I think that, you know, you, you, this is not a surprise. This, this has been going through the courts basically since the 1980s. And this has been the emotive issue. This has been the one that has been uh, seminal in raising funding for congressional candidates. It's all about overturning Roe v. Wade. And in all the discussions, it's not, in, especially in the GOP, there's not this, you know, like, oh, now, now that this is done, you know, we're going to, you know, roll back uh, same-sex marriage and, and we're going to, to start. There's always a fringe that wants to do that. But, you know, I, I don't think that um, those things are even on the No, but burner. I think that there's a difference between Republican Party and the evangelical found fundamentalists that have pushed abortion as a wedge issue since the 1970s. Well, okay. And like Professor I said before, Johnson, I am an evangelical and I am a, 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 a but, former officer in the, or member of the GOP. No, so. but, but fair enough. But Harry Blackman, who wrote B. Wade, was a Republican. Well, right? so was David That's, Souter. I exactly. Mean, there are many Republicans who have supported it. It's not a partisan issue in that way. As you say, it's about religious evangelical foundational faith. Which That's, I am a member of. And that is a small part of the Republican Party. And I think there's going to be a big hemorrhage, a big peel away of women in the Republican Party who say, how can I be in a party that is so foundationally denying my, found, my fundamental right well, to, I, to I privacy, think to, to the human right of but, having control over my body? I'm not, I'm not making light of this, but again, this is where it becomes local, and this is where it gets to the elections. And when people are struggling to pay for $5 uh, a gallon in gasoline, when people are trying to deal with the inflation, um, I think that those, those issues, sadly, um, become the ones that lead to their direction in the ballot box. And in the middle of that, what they all need is another child. Well, some people do. I mean, you, well, if so you... Of course they do, but it should be their decision. And what Mississippi's, Mississippi's <laughs> regulations do is take away that ability of women 
to right. decide whether after, you know, in very early stages. At this what, point. what I will concede is that, that those women of limited means that can't travel 20 miles to Georgia or 20 miles to Tennessee. Or a thousand miles from Mississippi to Illinois. Well, they, 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 they don't have to go a thousand they miles. They do. And, that, that, I, mean, unless, yeah, I mean, this this comes back to the question of what the lived reality of women in Texas, in Miss, Mississippi, in Alabama is. And the point is, you can't go to a neighboring state in Mississippi or Alabama. You, you're going to have to go much, much further, right? And I don't know if it's a thousand miles, but well, it's not not twenty miles, and it costs. You know how much the companies are reimbursing for travel? Okay, but seven thousand dollars for travel. Well, one, um, Illinois is not a thousand miles from Alabama. Two, Georgia and Florida uh, have not enacted trigger laws, and it's not even on the issue. So people in Mississippi can go to Alabama, they can go to Florida, uh, they can. Um, you know, how, they, how many miles is that? Less than a hundred, and some depending on if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, you're, you're only you get, about okay, hundred miles from. There's another part of this too. Once you get to these states, you can't just walk in. You've got to go through a two or three day process of, you know, going through health checks, and then, you know, it's it's time off work, it's childcare, it's travel, it's many things that you know you can't just like wipe away and say, hey, this is no big deal. It's a big deal. Okay, so I just got to interject there. We've just got to take a break because we've got a three-minute news summary coming up, but we'll continue the discussion uh, at uh, three minutes past. Um, uh, Listeners, you can uh, get in touch, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us on 233-88266. And after nine, we'll also be joined by Evelyn Chow, who's a solicitor and partner of Patricia Ho and Associates. Um, A quick look at the weather. Uh, It's going to be fine apart from isolated showers. Very hot during the day. Top temperature around 33 degrees in the urban areas. Hotter in the new territories. Uh, Light to moderate southerly winds. The outlook, uh, very hot with sunny periods. Tomorrow, winds will strengthen gradually. There'll be more showers later. It's currently 30 degrees. Humidity 73%. Very hot weather warning. And welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And on this morning's Back Chat, we're talking about uh, abortion rights uh, in the United States uh, and uh, elsewhere. Uh, that following the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, which overturned the uh, Road versus Wade ruling from 1973, which had guaranteed a woman's constitutional right to an abortion across the country. Uh, now the situation is uh, changing quite rapidly. Uh, we have with us Crick's Chris Exline, the former chairman of Republicans Abroad here in Hong Kong, and Kendall Johnson, a professor of American literature at the School of English at the University of Hong Kong. And joining us now also is Evelyn Chow, who's a solicitor and partner with uh, Patricia Ho and Associates. Uh, Evelyn Evelyn Chow, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Perhaps you could just give us an overview of what is the situation here in Hong Kong uh, with regard uh, to abortion rights. I should just say as well for the benefit of the listeners that uh, Evelyn Chow uh, has a particular interest in family issues, uh, reproductive rights uh, and uh, a conviction towards uh, advancing women and LGP- LGBT rights. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, the situation in Hong Kong is that abortion is um, illegal unless and until certain conditions are fulfilled. So you can have an abortion only when 
when you have two doctors who are of the view that um, either the continuance of the pregnancy would bring about physical or mental injury to the pregnant woman, or there would be serious um, fetal impairment if the pregnancy continues. And um, there are other situations where um, there is a presumption that the continuance of pregnancy would involve that risk of injury. And this is where um, it's girls below age 16 or victims of rape. So um, these are the conditions you have to fulfill before um, you can get an abortion, plus um, the fact that abortion cannot be performed um, if um, the pregnancy is more than 24 weeks, unless it is life-threatening to the pregnant woman. In practice, how difficult is it for someone to opt for abortion in Hong Kong? I think in practice it really depends on the medical practitioners um, because from my understanding, some doctors are more inclined to allow for abortion and they would be more lax or loose in um, saying that, all right, the continuance of pregnancy would bring physical or mental injury because you don't want it. That's why if I were to say that you have to continue the pregnancy, there would be psychological and emotional injuries resulting to you. That's why I think um, I can sign off to say that uh, that risk is there. Um, but of course, it also depends. there are also some doctors who are more conservative-minded, and they would um, be uh, guarding this hurdle really tightly. Is there any requirement to uh, view films of aborted fetuses, or which I think some of the states have in America, or um, have to be counselled by a priest or anything? There's no um, legal requirement to be uh, counseled um, by anyone. So um, it's a d- bit different from um, the states. And I think the states, um, I'm not sure, but certain places, um, you don't have the uh, uh, counseling requirement. I know that in Canada, um, where abortion is generally legal, there is a requirement that you have to first go through a counseling um, session. Right. Well, what sort of volume are we talking about here in Hong Kong? How many abortions a year, on average? Oh, I haven't... I I don't have the statistics, um, um, but it's not uncommon, I would say. And do we have enough facilities? I mean, one hospital quite uh, in in Central used to be well-known for abortion, but it's been closed for quite a while now. Are there enough facilities? I I think there are definitely... Um, problems in access to abortion because um, most of the people they do rely on public services but the public hospital as you know is extremely packed and so you're subject to the same queue, the very very long queue um, and hence sometimes it's not as timely as um, the person wanting the abortion would like and when it's very close to 24 weeks and you're waiting you get very desperate and you may resort to um, the black market or, or, or you find practices that are not really well regulated and maybe quite dangerous. Um, I think um, there is the option for pregnancies up to 10 weeks where you can go to the Family Planning Association and they do a very good job in offering abortion services. But after 10 weeks, then you have to rely on either the public hospital or you have to pay um, to go to a private hospital. And that's not affordable for a lot of people. Or cross the border to Shenzhen. Yes, which is um, 
a bit dangerous because um, those practices are not as um, regulated as here in Hong Kong. Mm. Okay, okay, thanks for that. Uh, I have a couple of uh, messages here from listeners, a couple of emails. Uh, Charlie writes, uh, it continually astonishes me as to why men discuss and decide critical female life issues when they, in fact, will never really understand the issues. Uh, well, uh, we do our best to try to understand as much as we can, uh, Charlie. That's partly why we have uh, discussion programmes like this as well. Uh, but uh, thanks for your points. Uh, and uh, S writes, uh, with the subject line abortion rights, what everyone is forgetting is the impact it will have on unwanted children there have been reports of the negative impact on social life and also the risk of mental health of unwanted children and the overall crime rate also goes up. Um, let's uh, ask our, our two guests in our Admiralty studio uh, who are both uh, from the US. Uh, uh, yeah, so unwanted children, crime rates, I mean, should these be considerations um, in, the, in the discussion on abortion rights or, or should, they, should those sort of issues be regarded entirely separately? Uh, they, they should be <clears throat> entirely separate, I, but there, there, there is a relation and a connection. I do believe that the responsible thing to do is, one, to promote adoptive uh, uh, solutions. Um, I think that uh, you cannot extrapolate unwanted or un, um, you know, un, un, uh, children that are unloved with crime. It's basically a major urban issue. And so I think that the governments must do much more for pre-K, uh, pre-kindergarten pre care, uh, expand services, expand the ability for children to be more in inclusive and, and just more, reg uh, more regularly attending learning centers and things like that, and uh, more jobs programs for inner city youth. That's, that's what will keep them off the streets. See, I think that's a, I mean, Chris and I, I think right down the center with that, we're like total agreement. And it's so strange to me that when we're talking about life, that's not part of the foundational discussion, right? Like, how do you, you know, provide equal education, uh, child support, family support, parental leave? Uh, and the United States lags behind all other industrialized countries um, around these health care rights and foundations. And then you come back to abortion and you put you talk about it in that context and it becomes dire. But we should be valuing the life of every child, every, you know, and, and right now the United States is falling fall short of that. And, and the people that I've known that have had to wrestle with whether or not to get an abortion, it sadly, a lot of it becomes monetary. Um, can they afford it? Can it, would it? Does it have a deleterious consequence for their career? So I, it's not that, that a lot of these women just you know, one is a form of birth control, but those that go through with it, I mean, there, there needs to be some form of economic safety net. And what I have a problem with the Republican Party is they sit there and they say, oh, we have a right to life. Oh, but not, not my life to help support. And so if you're going to say that, then you need to make sure that we have a social safety net. And the inefficiency uh, inequality within the United States is, is horrific. The United States has the money and the power and the apparatus to expand all forms of uh, education for these, for these children and to make sure that they are you know, trained and tooled so that they're not on, on the streets. Mm. Is this verdict in America, does it have any impact on the, on the rights of the father of, of the child? If, if, uh, will the, what is the position of the rights of the father? Well, in terms of rights, um, there are 
abortion regulations that have been put in that require consent from you know various collateral parties or I guess we could say participating parties. So I don't really know when or if there's a, um, a regulation that anybody getting an abortion has to check with the, the husband, the father, the father, etc. But in general, um, men and are foundationally affected by these questions of reproductive rights. And, found, you know, we're all brothers, husbands, fathers. Um, we all have connections, deep family connections, to to women who are considering their uh, reproductive rights and reproductive but health. Yeah. I, I, what I was thinking was, would the, in a theoretical basis, would the rapist have the right to claim some sort of parental uh, relationship? Well, it's <laughs> extremely perverse. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's just that is a that, that's that's an issue for uh, seven more programs. You could do a series on uh, speculative mm. things like that. But in today's society, in the United States, no, mm. it, it's really it is a, a, a woman's issue. It's always about the woman's right to choose, and that's why the uh, those that are for uh, uh, banning abortion always focus on the the life of the fetus. But the other part of this is fascinating. Is in the majority decision by Samuel Alito. He goes back to Matthew Hale in the 1600s, and if you read that, you know at the time Matthew Hale was a very influential jurist, but he did not believe uh, that husbands could rape their wives, right? And he put witches on trial. So, you know, your question: Does the rapist have rights? Well, we'd have to go back to the 1600s to answer that, and I think Matthew Hale might have something to say. Alito thinks that that's where we should be going to figure out what you know women's rights are today. Uh, uh, Evelyn Chow, hey, you still with us? Yes. So, you, so you've explained the situation on uh, abortion rights uh, here in Hong Kong. I mean, is there sort of a, a general feeling among the legal profession or, or in society as a whole that Hong Kong's more or less got it uh, uh, the situation right, or is there any pressure to change things one way or another? I think generally, um, my peers who are more liberal-minded, um, we're not very happy with the status of reproductive freedom in Hong Kong. Um, when we have the states um, debating so hotly about this issue, we haven't even begun in Hong Kong to place um, the concept of reproductive freedom on the table for discussion in courts because uh, nobody has attempted that so far. And I think it's to do with uh, cultural biases or prejudices so that people don't want to come out um, to fight over this, um, to, to be the representative to fight over this. Um, and generally, my, my take on the present legislation is that um, it's a pro-life kind of um, phrasing of the legislation. Because when you couch language in a way that requires um, certain conditions to be satisfied, and you're pitting this against the reproductive right of a woman, and giving a presumption that pregnancy should be continued unless and until da-da-da, then you are actually taking a pro-life stance. And I think Hong, the problem with Hong Kong law, even if it's more, um, it's a bit better than the state of Hong, uh, the United States right now, is that it's still very much pro-life and it sends the wrong message. In my um, personal view, it sends the wrong message because it means that women don't get the choice um, and the freedom of um, having the bodily autonomy that is so cherished. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, okay, thanks. Um, um, just before we bring this uh, part of the programme to a close, uh, uh, let's just uh, ask our two guests in Admiralty, um, how much of an issue do you think this is going to be now in the mid-term elections in November? Well, not. No. I think it'll be a, 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 if it's, it will be a big one. And if it's not, the Democrats have themselves to blame. I, the reason I say it's not is because the it's so or, or, the people that are so adamant on one side or the other they already have the majorities. So it's that's what I said. There's only four toss-up Senate races where this actually could become an issue. And it, it may be a factor in Arizona. It may be a factor. Probably will be in Georgia. Uh, pro- possibly in Wisconsin. And then you know I don't uh, I don't think that uh, Pen- and maybe in Pennsylvania. But those are the only four Senate seats. I don't I don't really see this being the rallying cry. I think this is going to be sadly a referendum on Joe Biden and the country believing that he's been an ineffective leader. How about 2024? I I think this is the stump upon which Trump will relaunch another bid for the presidency, sadly. Uh, uh, Kendall Johnson? Um, I I think Trump, after you look at the... I hope not. I mean, these hearings should basically... I think, you know, someone like DeSantis from Florida might take the Trump throne. Um, I think it'll be a big issue for the next midterm and presidential election. And I think there's a lot of collateral lights that will um, basically inspire the the, the base uh, on both sides. And um, public opinion shows it's going to go Democrat. Will it will it affect fundraising? If, yes. if there's no <laughs> there's no reason now to raise funds to overthrow Roe v. Wade because we've done it. I, I, I think that the, I, I think what you know the corporate uh, backstopping of the costs related to women's reproductive rights and abortion tells you where companies are going to put their money. This is an extra expense now that they're going to have to ex- roll out to all uh, uh, women, right? And you know, I'm glad that they are, um, but in terms of a political fundraising campaign, where do you think Google's going to try? You know, where, where, do they, where are they going to put their money now? Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for Thank speaking you. to us uh, on this morning's program. Uh, uh, that was Kendall Johnson. You heard from uh, last there, who's the Professor of American Literature at the School of English at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks very much to Chris Exline, the former chairman of Republicans Abroad. And thanks very much to Evelyn Chow, a solicitor and partner with uh, Patricia Ho and Associates. And uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the program, we're going to ch- turn our attention to another issue, but also uh, medically uh, related. And, and this one is the uh, the announcement by the hospital authority that it plans to bring in uh, senior mainland doctors from the Greater Bay Area. That'll be in the second half of this year. That's part of efforts to counter what it's described as a very worrying brain drain uh, here. Uh, we're pleased to uh, say good morning to Dr David Lamb, who's the legislator from the medical and health services sector. Good morning to you. Good morning. So how much of a a help is uh, this going to be, bringing in these uh, doctors from the Greater Bay Area? In the short term, I think they are just talking about five to ten doctors Mm. it starts with, and, well, that number is not going to help in any significant way. Mm. But we don't know whether that will expand with time. So we still have to wait and see. Well, yes, uh, uh, of course, in terms of numbers. Uh, so uh, Henry Fan, the hospital authority chairman, said uh, nearly 500 full-time uh, public doctors and about 2,600 nurses had uh, quit in the past 
12 months. So, yeah, clearly, from the number of five or ten doctors to begin with, it's not going to be much, is it? But in, in is, is that something that, a scheme that you would like to see very much uh, expanded and, and quickly to make up the shortfall? No, you, you talk about the number of doctors and nurses leaving mm. the public hospital in the past year or so, mm. but then you also have to look at the number of new doctors and new nurses each year. We have roughly 550 uh, medical graduates a year, and the number is still on the rise. And as for nurses, we have over 2,000 new graduates every year. And, of course, we stopped the licensing examination in the past two or three years, and that would have helped Hong Kong by adding another, or just less than 100 doctors a year for two and a half years or three years. That would make roughly 200 doctors. Mm -hmm. So the shortage, as you see it here, is both because of um, uh, the, the losing of doctors by either retirement or emigration or resignation and also we have stopped the license examination right. so it is nothing new for for the hospital authority to import doctors from outside hong kong if you still remember back in 2011 i think the then chairman of hospital authority mr anthony wu started the ball rolling by importing overseas uh, doctor who has attained a level of uh, training similar to our intermediate stage of specialist training to Hong Kong, uh, again through limited registration. So we are now just expanding the scheme to import doctors from across the border using, again, the limited registration. So it's nothing very new. Are we satisfied that the level of training is comparable? Yes, of course. Uh, the level of training in the mainland China is nothing... Uh, I mean, it's just very similar to that of Hong Kong. They do not have a uh, a well-established scheme of specialist uh, qualification. But then uh, they do it through um, their day-to-day -day work. So if someone works in a hospital under the Department of Surgery, for instance, and after a certain number of years, they will be promoted to a senior level. And before promotion, they have to get their PhD in that particular field of medicine. So their PhD is very similar to our specialist training, although it's not entirely the same. So they have their system, and I think it's still evolving. So it's not the similar, it's not the same system, but they do attain a similar level uh, okay. of competency. And do the professional bodies here, are they comfortable with this arrangement? It's really with the Medical Council of Hong Kong. Now, the Medical, Medical Council of Hong Kong has for many years approved doctors from overseas and from across the border in mainland China using the limited registration scheme. They look at papers. So that includes the basic qualifications and a higher qualification of these doctors and also uh, reasons why the employing organizations want them here instead of local doctors. So it's a very established way of working and we never had any problem with that. Are we okay with the language requirement? The language, most people in Hong Kong speak Cantonese. Yes, but will, these do us, will the doctors yeah. be speaking Cantonese or Putonghua? Younger doctors nowadays, the younger generation nowadays, they speak Putonghua, right. uh, as well as Hong Kong, as well as Cantonese. And when we're talking about a Greater Bay Area, most of these people speak Cantonese as well. Right. And the, and the minorities in Hong Kong that looking for English-speaking doctors? But we have English. We have English-speaking doctors around, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> and for yes, some, for, for a long, long time, actually, for a long, long time, we have been um, inviting overseas doctors who only speaks English, and that has caused some problem with translation. But again, 
even with that, we managed. So we're just talking about uh, some doctors who may not speak uh, English like we do or like um, the overseas doctor do. I don't think there will be a big problem with translation. And, and mind you, do not underestimate the ability of mainland people speaking English. Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is an exchange program, and yes. uh, I think uh, priority is going to be given uh, to those medical staff uh, who were here in Hong Kong earlier this year uh, dealing with the Omicron outbreak. So is that a sensible move? I think so. Mm. It's a good move to start with. Mm. Um, the system can be quite different in two places. So if you get someone here who at least have a hang of what we are doing here, then I think it's just a, a good start. So they can be uh, the starting group of people and gradually they just train uh, their successors in our method of treating patients, in our system, uh, in our bureaucracy. And with time, you'll be training a group of doctors from across the border who knows how Hong Kong works. So Is there anything else you'd like to see the government doing here, or the hospital authority, to keep up the numbers at a, a reasonable level? Uh, no, they're talking about the, rest of the special registration scheme, which is slightly different. But again, that welcomes overseas doctors and mainland doctors who uh, attain a similar level of competency. But so far, we have not seen any uh, mainland medical qualification being approved by the Special Registration Committee, uh, except for one that is really for foreigners and not for locals. Mm. So we look forward to see more approval uh, by that Special Registration Committee for, I mean, uh, with regards to mainland qualification, so that doctors who are actually Hong Kong permanent residents who cross the border to pursue their medical training can eventually come back to Hong Kong through the Special Registration Scheme. There's also a, an incentive scheme to try to help uh, retain uh, local staff, and that is uh, the uh, a, a low-interest uh, home loan scheme. So applications yes. will start uh, being accepted in the fourth quarter of this year. I mean, that sounds pretty attractive. So the loan amount is uh, up to 48 months of the employee's monthly salary or 6 million interest rates set at 1%. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. do, do you think that's going to uh, be very attractive? Um, that reflects a big problem in Hong Kong is that living standard is too high, it's too expensive. So I think that is what the new government has to deal with, to make it reasonable so that everyone in Hong Kong is able uh, to afford some sort of living place, whether you buy it or you, you rent it or by other, by other means. But this, is, this just illustrates a big problem we are facing. So I'd rather turn it around and tell the government, please do something about it. And instead of asking employers to help their employees to buy a, a, a rent a flat in order to retain them. But if you back, go back to the question whether it is attractive or not, it really depends. If you're talking about the more senior nurses and doctors, uh, they would probably have um, some place to live in Already, and yeah. perhaps purchase their own, own flat so it is not very attractive to them but to the younger generation and the new joiners yes that may be attractive mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, that was uh, Dr David Lam, the legislator from the medical and health services sector. Um, one other message from a uh, listener. Uh, where's it gone? Uh, okay, yeah, this is from listener Guy. 
referring to our earlier discussion about the situation with abortion rights in the United States and the ruling by the US Supreme Court says, uh, why on earth is RTHK wasting 45 minutes of valuable airtime on an issue which has nothing whatsoever to do with Hong Kong? Well, uh, I think the reason for uh, that guy, the explanation that I would give is that um, uh, there are a lot of international people living here and we do take an interest uh, in world affairs as indeed do local people and it's a, and it, and it's a big international uh, news item uh, which raises many points of concern and that's why uh, you know we chose it for this morning's back chat topic and we do try most days to stick to local topics but we like to branch out and be a little bit international from time to yeah, time. It would be a bit strange not to acknowledge uh, Ukraine and Russia, for yeah. example. I mean, they're not, they're not the number one local issue, but they have an effect on Hong Kong as yeah, well. Abs absolutely, well. yeah, yeah. Good, all right. Well, thanks very much for uh, your opinions, uh, our listeners. Um, thanks to our guests this morning. Thanks to our producer, Yuki Jung. And thanks very much again to you, Mike. It was a pretty serious show tonight. Mm, pretty um, serious, yeah, yeah, yeah serious are. topics, yeah, yeah. See what we talk about next week. Uh, right, so we'll see you again next Monday, I guess. You will. Uh, right, OK. Now, before we go to the news summary and morning brew, a quick look at the weather. Fine, apart from isolated showers. Uh, and very hot during the day with a top temperature of around 33 degrees. And that's in the urban areas. Uh, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Light to moderate southerly winds. The outlook, very hot with sunny periods tomorrow. Winds will strengthen gradually and there'll be more showers in the following couple of days. Currently 30 degrees, humidity 74%. Very hot weather warning is in effect. Before doing a COVID-19 rapid antigen test, read the user guide carefully and follow each step as instructed. First, prepare a clean surface and wash your hands. For a nasal swab, insert the swab into your nostrils and rub it against the walls of each nostril several times as instructed. Submerge the swab tip fully into the buffer solution and stir. Squeeze droplets of the solution slowly into the well of the test device afterwards. Wait for the time specified in the user guide and read the result. Results taken beyond the time limit will be invalid. When finished, dispose of all parts of the test kit properly. If only the C-line is present, the test result is negative. If both the C-line and the T-line are present, the test result is positive, in which case you have to take a photo of the result and report it within 24 hours via the declaration system of the Department of Health. Do the test often by yourself. It helps you detect any infection and receive treatment as soon as possible to protect yourself and others around you.